We've been going through a series on the churches in Revelation. There are seven churches that Jesus writes to in the first couple of chapters of the book of Revelation, in chapters 1 to chapter 3. And we're now on the sixth church, the church in Philadelphia. And we find this reading in Revelation, that's the last book in the Bible, chapter 3 and verses 7 to 13. Revelation chapter 3, verse 7 to 13, and I'm reading from a new international version of the Bible. Revelation 3 and verse 7. There Jesus says, To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the keys of David. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews though they are not, but liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is to come on the whole world to test inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have, so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and of the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Slide, please. The little things are important. Kuna tells me this from time to time. The little things are important. And a doctor once told an older couple that many people find it useful in later life to write themselves little notes when they get home to remind themselves of the things that they need to do. So when this particular couple got home, the wife said to the husband, I say, dear, will you be a darling and go to the kitchen and get me a dish of ice cream? And maybe write it down so you don't forget. <laughs> Nonsense, said the husband. I can remember a dish of ice cream. Well, said the wife, I'd also like some strawberries with it and perhaps a little cream. So write it down. My memory's not that bad, said the husband. No problem. One dish of ice cream, strawberries and cream coming up. I don't need to write it down. And he went into the kitchen. Well, there followed lots of noises, a banging of pots and opening of drawers and things being switched on and off and what have you. And eventually he emerged back from the kitchen carrying a nice plate. And he presented to his wife and he presented her a steaming plate full of bacon and eggs. And the wife looked at this plate of bacon and eggs and she said, I told you to write it down. Just where is my plate of beans on toast? 
The little things can be important. And in this book of Revelation, going through the stories of the letters to the seven churches, we come from a big church to a little church. When Terry was preaching last, he was preaching about the church in Sardis, which was a big church in a big city. And now we move from Sardis, we move 30 miles east, and we come to a small church in another big city, but a small church. And Sardis was a big church, and it was sleeping, while Philadelphia was a small church, and it was seeking. And so between the two churches, we move from a sleeping giant to a very small church, which lacks the size and the power of its eastern neighbor. And yet this small church, this much smaller church, is vibrant and it is alive. And it just goes to show that size isn't everything. And we come to the church in Philadelphia. So what do we know about the city of Philadelphia? Well, Philadelphia was founded in 140 BC. Next slide, please. And it was founded by a man called Attalus II. Attalus II whose loyalty to his brother, Immunius, sorry, Immunis, was famous throughout the whole of Asia, so much so that Attalus II lived by a nickname, which I'll tell you about in a minute. And on one, one occasion, when the news reached Attius, who was the younger brother, but his older brother, Immunius, had been killed in Greece, had been assassinated. He was told to take the crown to prevent, to, to prevent the, the kingdom forming into chaos. So indeed, Attius II became the king. And yet two months later, his brother returned from Greece, from Macedonia, returned and was able to come back. And immediately he came back into the city. Attius stood down and gave the crown back to his brother and enabled his brother to carry on ruling as the king. Later on, when Rome was scheming to get control of the whole areas, it tried to turn Attius against his brother and offered to enable him to usurp his brother and to take the crown. But Attalus II refused. And as a consequence, he was given the nickname Brother Lover. Brother Lover. And so the city that was founded on AD 140 BC was called Philadelphia, which literally means Brother Lover. It was named after Attius II. And Philadelphia was a prosperous city. It sat on three major trade routes with a lot of traffic going between north and, and, and south, east and west. And it was these roads that led it to be conceived by the people of Pergamum and the king of Pergamum to build the city um, of, um, of Philadelphia to do two things. First of all, to prevent that vital eastern trade route and to prevent the valley from being overrun by the barbarians. And the barbarians were the people of the east. You know, it's because the western part of, of civilization had been civilized and, he, and the barbarians were coming from the east. So it was seen initially as, as, as a blockage city, but also as a city of missionary outport. It was sent, built to colonize the rest of the east, to take the Greek culture and to civilize the wild barbarian native eastern peoples. So it was a missionary city and it became known as the gateway to the east, the gateway to the east. But it was also very famous because it sat on the edge of a very barren place that became very fertile. It sat on the edge of a place called the Catacacumene. 
the Katakakumini. And the Katakakumini was a place of a lot of volcanic activity. It was dark, it was grey. Katakakumi in Greek literally means the burnt land. And it was burnt because it was in a volcanic area that was still active. And there was ash that came and killed the plants. And there was movement in the soil and in the earth because it sat on teutonic plates. But as the time progressed, the catacumbian, this, this burnt land, because it left the ground rich in minerals, became one of the most vibrant vineyards in the whole world, even um, threatening the vineyards in Rome. So much so that D D Domitian, a much later emperor, had these vineyards in this area torn up because they threatened the prosperity of Rome. It was, if you like, the Bordeaux of the ancient world. It was a very prosperous city. And as a consequence, Philadelphia became a very prosperous place. The main god of Philadelphia was Dionysus. And Dionysus is the, uh, the Roman god for wine and for partying. So it became a place renowned for its great wine and its great parties. But being so close to this volcanic area was also dangerous. And for the whole region was subject to earthquakes over time. And one such great earthquake occurred in AD 17, when, that, when both Philadelphia and 11 other cities in Asia Minor were totally destroyed by an earthquake. It was devastating. And in fact, because um, Philadelphia was the closest city to this region, it was a city that for years was, remained uninhabitable because of the fact that the ground kept on having minor shakes for three or four years to come. So the people fled the city and they lived in tents around it, terrified that going back into the city they would be killed by fallen masonry. Strabo, for example, the Roman geographer, describes the area as a city full of earthquakes. So Philadelphia was a city of a mixed history. It had a beautiful name, the city of brotherly love. It was the gateway to the east. It was a city renowned for its wine, renowned for its laughter. But it was also a city of terror and a city of tears because it lived in an active earthquake zone. And it had this small church, the Philadelphian church, of a small few Christians who met together to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. And what's fascinating is that while in out of the seven churches, five of the churches receive a condemnation from Jesus in the letter he writes. Only Smyrna and Philadelphia only get a commendation of praise. There's no condemnation in his letter to the church of Philadelphia. It was small, but it was alive. It was small, but it was vibrant. It was weak, but it was looking to the man and the God who was strong. Jesus only gives them words of commendation. He says in verse 8, I know your deeds. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. And in this short letter, it speaks of three things. The first is, next slide please. The first is, it talks of the sender. It talks of the sender. It begins in verse 7 with these. These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the keys of the kingdom, of the key, who holds the keys of David. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts... No one can open. Jesus said he is both holy and true. And holy is a word that many people struggle with, don't they? It's a word that we struggle with in our world in which we live. Because we often think of holy as meaning funny peculiar. 
You know, when Hollywood tries and portrays holy in the, in the films it makes, you know, it often makes things look really unusual in, in a not a good way. You know, it has people kind of floating or it, it being inferior, kind of not quite there or, or there and not quite there. It's quite a strange way of doing it. And that's not really what holy means. Holy means to be totally pure, without fault, without error. It means to be beautiful in that way of purity. You know, we value gold, don't we, in terms of if we buy a wedding ring or an engagement ring to someone, we value it by its purity. We could never afford the gold that was holy because it would be totally pure. Not 24 carats. It would be totally pure, without fault. And we struggle to understand it because we tend to be a bit cynical, especially in this country. We've become very cynical recently, especially during the pandemic. You know, I, I get fed up now listening to Radio 4. I used to love listening to the news, but it's now so cynical. And whenever you have someone speaking, they want to tear each other to pieces. You know, it, I find myself getting depressed. I have to turn off Radio 4 and go to Radio 2 in the morning because, you know, I, just hit, I don't want to hear argument all the time and people being questioned in an aggressive and, and disparaging way. You know, and we've become very cynical since then. We don't believe people. You know, some people don't believe masks. You have to wear masks. You wander around saying, there's no such thing. It's just a big government hoax around the world, you know. But this doesn't exist. And they protest and say they want freedom. Freedom, freedom to catch COVID. That's not the freedom I particularly want to have, but okay, crack on. But they, we're so cynical. We don't believe. And, and we don't understand holiness because people think, well, I'm not holy, so how can anyone be holy? And we judge others by our standards. Because it's impossible for us to be correct, and we know that we lie and pretend we don't, we think no one else can be holy or pure. And so we judge God and think God is really not really for us, he's not really holy, he's actually against us, he wants to punish us. And that's not what the Bible says. Jesus is holy. In fact, holiness is, means that God is pure, there is no sin in God. The seraphims around God, we're told in Isaiah 6, cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And when God speaks from the throne, Isaiah 43, he says, I am the Lord, your holy one. John tells us in 1 John 3 verse 5 about Jesus, he said, he appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him there is no sin. Jesus is the Holy One. He's like his Father God, the Holy One. The Holy One actually is a, is a title of God we find in the Old Testament. It's used time and time again. Isaiah 40, verse 25, To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One. The prophet Habakkuk tells us, God came from Hermon, the Holy One from Mount Paran. And we find when the demons saw Jesus in, in Mark's gospel, in Mark chapter 1, they shout out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Jesus is holy. It means he's pure. He never has an evil intent for you or for me or for anyone. He is right. He is pure. He has pure integrity. We can trust him because he is holy. And isn't that good to know he's different? Different to those in our world but call themselves good that we know that really aren't. His standard is different. His standard is better. His standard is pure. And he's not just the holy one. We're told in verse 7, he is true. 
He says, these are the words of him who is holy and true. Now in the Greek language, there are two words that talk about truth. The most common word is the word alephes. Alephes, and alephes means true in the factual sense. Okay, it means truth against lie. So when someone says two plus two equals four, that is correct. That is alephes, that is factually right. That's what the first word, the most common word in Greek means about truth. But Jesus uses a different word here, a word that's not often used of people. It is the word alephinos, alephinos. And alephinos means truth in the sense of real, against unreal. Something that's genuine, something that is authentic. If you buy something from eBay, you've got to be really careful nowadays. You, you go in there and someone's advertising a designer brand and you think, yeah, this is fractional the price, you know, I must go for this. And you bid it and you win it and it comes back and it arrives. You discover this is not quite what it makes out to be. It may have the label, but actually the quality doesn't correspond with the label. It's been made by some sweat factory somewhere in the world and you haven't got an authentic item. That is the opposite to this Greek word for real. Alephinos is rarely applied to people and it means totally genuine. It means the real thing. You know, when we vote in an election, the thing we want most, isn't it? To have genuine leaders. To have someone who really is as they say they are. They're not just telling you things because they want to get elected. They're actually going to deliver on what they say. What they're saying is genuine, that they are true. Well, Jesus is Alephinos. He is true. He is genuine. He is the real thing. It's not Coca-Cola. It's Jesus Christ. He is the real thing. What he says is true. Not just factually true. It is genuine. He is authentic. He is the Savior. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And we can depend upon him. Because his words are holy and they are true. And then we move next to the, this, this letter talks of the strength. Next slide, please. It talks of the strength. Slide eight. Thank you. Jesus says, I know that you have little strength. Yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. You see, he knows this church is feeling overwhelmed and powerless in a big dark world. He knows this church is small in Philadelphia. He knows that there's many other temples and religions around it. In fact, one of the nicknames for Philadelphia in the later stages of its life was the Little Athens. Little Athens, because there are so many temples around it. The main temple being to Dionysus, but there are many other temples. And the church was small in this city, but they were faithful. They held on to the word of God. And he reaches out in love to this church. The church is feeling rejected and powerless in the situation because they're being persecuted within their culture. And he praises them because they've been faithful to God's word. They've, copped God's, they've kept God's word. This little church is commended because it has not given up. It has not let God's word slide or go. And when churches face great opposition in the world, often the very first thing that Christians surrender is the truth. They start to let go of the Bible. They start to let things slide. They start to reinterpret things to align with our culture and our society because they haven't got the confidence to hang on to the truth. They let things go. They compromise to take away some of the pressure. And Jesus says to this church in verse 8, I know you have little strength, yet you have kept my word. 
you have kept my word. And today in 2021, we live in a society that is becoming increasingly hostile towards Christian thought and Christian teaching. Mark my words. We're already having problems legally around the country, people being arrested for preaching on the streets. Sometimes they preach perhaps unwisely, but nevertheless, they're being arrested for freedom of speech on this, in, in this nation. And subtly, things are going around in terms of laws being passed that may, may, you may not be able to pray in certain circumstances anymore. Because people don't like what Christianity stands for. They don't like the teaching of Jesus Christ. Because for them, he cannot be the way the truth and the life, because that's intolerance. And the one thing that an intolerant society hates is intolerance, not realizing the irony of the fact that they become intolerant by even saying that thing. So you're not allowed to believe in one God, one way, one truth, one life, because that doesn't fit with our society. And these Christians, even though they lived in a polytheistic environment with many gods and the big pressures we heard in other times was to, to, you could worship God, you could worship Jehovah, they said, as long as you also worship Caesar. As long as you worship Caesar, we're happy. And many Christians, like the Christians in Pergamum and the Christians in Smyrna, were being punished and even killed because they refused to worship Caesar. And we're being put pressure on to worship other gods alongside our own. We can worship our God as long as we worship the other gods of our age. And they, the people in, in Philadelphia said no. They held on. Even though they had little strength, they held on to the word. Remember what Jesus said earlier on in verse 7. These are the words of him who is holy and true. The problem is when we let go of the word, we let go of the truth. And when we let go of the truth, we're let go of, let go, letting go of Jesus. Because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. When we start to let go of the word, we're not just letting go of a concept or a Bible, we're letting go of Jesus, who is the word. And we begin to let go of what we stand for as Christians. And we take the heart out of who we are as Christians, and we begin to walk half in one world and half in the other. And then we don't give a true light or blow a true trumpet sound. The world may be happier if we don't stand for everything that's in the Bible. People will be happier if you don't talk about sin. They'll be happier if you don't talk about hell. They'll be happy if you say that everyone's saved, everyone gets the glory, no matter what you do on this earth. They'll be happier with that. At least some will be happy. Maybe some will be fundamentally unhappy because, well, some people feel that they've lived a life where they've, been, they've suffered injustice. And God is a God of justice. So not everyone wants there not to be punishment or judgment, but the Bible says there is punishment and judgment. That what we do in this life does count. That we will give an accounting. That's what the Bible says. But it also says that we'll be saved, those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, and go his way. And we've got to be very careful because when we let go of the word, we let go of the word of God, the person of Jesus Christ. And so we find this when he says in verse 8, I know you have little strength, yet you have not let go of the word, nor denied my name. See, the two goes together. When we let go of the word, we deny the name of Jesus Christ, the person who says the word. What does Jesus say in Luke 9, verse 26? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes into his glory. 
We've got to hold on to the word, to hold on to the truth, and not deny the name of Jesus Christ. And these Christians have been doing it in Philadelphia, and as a consequence, they were suffering. They were suffering persecution. We find a quite a graphic description of the problems. Jesus says in verse 9, I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. I'll make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. It seems here that the, the, the Christians are being persecuted by the Jewish synagogue. And there was a good reason for that. For the first um, few centuries of the Christian church, it was very closely associated with the synagogue. Many of the early Christians, when Pentecost happened, were Jews. And as the church grew in Asia Minor, many of them started off worshipping um, both in house groups but also in the temple, in the Jewish synagogue. And they'll go to the Jewish synagogue on, on Sunday and worship God in that way. But as time progressed, Jesus became to be seen more and more as a heretic to the teachings of the Jewish church. And as a consequence, they began to be thrown out of a synagogue. And as a consequence of that, they weren't just thrown out of a synagogue. They're thrown out of their families. Families were stopping people seeing their, 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 their nephews and their nieces and their, their aunts and their uncles and their mums and their fathers because they had become Christians. And the doors of the homes and the doors of the synagogues were being closed against them. I've known this to happen even in my own family where my brother-in-law became a Christian. He was, a, he was a, a, an Israeli met my sister-in-law out in, out in Israel working on the kibbutz. And when he converted to the Christian faith on, on his wedding day, would you believe, in Edinburgh, his mother said, you are dead to me. The door was closed because he rejected his faith and had become a Christian. And this was happening to the Christians in the early church and the door of the synagogue and the faces of the families were being shut firmly and they weren't allowed up. And that's why Jesus says to them this. He says, I have placed before you an open door. I have placed before you an open door. A door that no one can shut. He's saying that even if they shut the synagogue doors against you, the way to salvation to you is open. And even if they shut the door of the family is against you, the door to the family of God is open. And the doors that I open, no one can shut behind me. And the door that I close, no one can open. This is so important to Philadelphian churches. Jesus doesn't say it once, but as an emphasis, he says it twice. Verse 7. These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the keys of David. That's the keys of the kingdom. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. And then verse 8. See, I've placed before you an open door, but no one can shut. When Jesus is before us, what he opens, no one can shut. Your salvation is sure. The way to glory, the way to God is open and no one can shut it because he is the way and the way, the life and the truth. Way, the truth and the life. And finally, in this passage, he talks about the stability. He talks of the stability. Verse 9, next slide, please. Thank you. He tells them to hold on. He says this church has been faithful. It has held on to the word of God, but he says to them, carry on holding on. Don't let go. And then he tells them in verse 11, hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The word crown is the word Stephanos, which re refers to the, the crown of the, the, in the games, in the victor's crown. I remember um, 
many years ago in, in Colchester, actually, one in, in the, with the paras one Friday afternoon. We had the COs run, the command officers run, and there's about 500 paratroopers down in Friday Woods. And I was one of them down there in my running shorts and my, my, my trousers. And I, used to, I used to do a lot of running when I was much younger. And um, uh, we, we began this run, and as we were running along, suddenly um, one of the other lads from A Company came along, and he was a young lad who called Aaron, who had married um, early on that summer. Um, had married him and his wife, taking him through marriage classes, what have you. And he thought it was quite comical, as he, a young 22-year-old, and there's me as a 39, nearly 40-year-old, you know, puffing along. He thought it was quite comical, he went past me to, to give me a big wave, like they'd run past me, and he, and he thought it was quite funny, and he carried on. Well, about three miles later, I went past him and I gave him a nice wave as he was struggling to finish the race and I actually got ahead of him in the race about 15 minutes before he passed the, uh, the finishing line. And it was really funny because I came, to, came across the finishing line, the, um, the sergeant major was shouting at the lads, even the Padre's beating you, let's hurry up! And, uh, and, I, and I, I, was back, I, I was at least a third, up, a third of the field. So two-thirds of the field were behind me. But the point is this, is that that young lad of 22 started the race so well he started so well, but he didn't finish so well. And we forget the Christian life is a race. And we often think it's all about the way you start. As long as you're straight out the firing line, straight out the, 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 the um, what they call them, behind your feet, straight out, what is it, what's it called? Blocks, straight out the blocks. As long as you're the first one out the blocks, you're okay. But races aren't like that. I was watching some of the European um, racing yesterday and saw a fantastic race. And one of the girls, um, fantastic runner, you know, was, was at the front, Haran. She was at the front virtually the whole way through. And just in the last two or three moments, an Ethiopian girl, half her size, just burst past her and just left her for dead. And she got first place. She got gold. It's not how you start the race. It's how you finish the race that matters. And we can start well, we can be deeply involved in the church, we can do so much for so many years and then suddenly we stop and we give up and say, oh, I've done my bit. Done my bit, done that, been there, done it. I'm now going to sit around and watch. People, it's not how you start the race. It's how you finish the race. That's what counts in a Christian church. Jesus says, hold on to what you have so no one will take your crown. We can give our crown up. No one can take it in the sense that Satan can come along and steal it. But we can give it up because we don't bother anymore. And then Jesus says this. He says, I'm coming soon. Hold on. Verse 11. I am coming soon. I am coming soon. And in Thessalonians, of course, Jesus says he'll come like a thief in the night. We don't know when it's going to be. It could be tonight. Jesus could come tonight. We don't know. He says, hold on. Hold on. And then he finally makes him this wonderful promise. He says in verse 12 this, he says, The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. Remember David wrote about this in the psalm I read earlier on, Psalm 27 verse 4. David said, One thing I ask of the Lord, this do I seek, but I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. This is the promise that Jesus makes to the one who's victorious. I will make your pillar. You'll be in the presence of God forever. And this was such an encouragement. Remember this country, this city was known as a city of sheikhs. It lived on this volcanic area right on the edge of Teutonic plates. And they were living in an area of stability. But Jesus says to them, follow me, be victorious, and you'll become stable like never before. You will be a pillar. 
an immovable pillar, never to be moved out of the presence of God. For the people of Philadelphia, it was tremendous because they spent years living out of the city because the city was unstable, because it was a threat, it was dangerous. And he was saying, follow me and I will make you immovable. You will not be shaken. What a great promise. But that unshakability only comes when we hold on. Being a Christian is like anything. It requires effort. And the more you put effort into your faith, the stronger you become and the more like a pillar you become. Sometimes we can be tottering fence posts. Not because God wants us to be, but because we don't anchor ourselves in him. And don't follow through on our promises and on our prayers. Pillar, the picture of an image of a pillar was something which is stable, immovable in the presence of God. And it's not just any pillar. On that pillar, God promises to write three three words, three names. He mentions this in verse 12, and I close with this. I will write on them the name of my God. And the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from God. And I will also write on them my new name. Three names. Three names. You know, all these letters written to the churches in, in the different contexts he writes them are all written very personally. It's only when you really dig into the word and really explore it, you actually get the truth and the meaning. Because actually this was so personal to the Christians in Philadelphia. Do you know Why? Because their city was the city of free names. Their city was the city of free names. Not only subject to shakes, it was a city of free names. You see, Philadelphia had been called Philadelphia by Attalus II, as we heard earlier on. The city of brotherly love. A wonderful name for a city. And yet, later on, when it was shaken by the earthquake in AD 17, it was destroyed, and because Caesar from Rome helped to rebuild it with money from Rome, it was renamed Neo-Caesarea. Neo-Caesarea, which means the new city of Caesar. And it kept that name for a few years, and then it reverted back to Philadelphia, and then eventually another Roman Caesar impressed the people, the citizens of Philadelphia, so they renamed the city a third time, and they called it Flavia. Because Flavia was a family name of the emperor, Vespasian. He's, he was from the, uh, the Flavarian family. So they called it Flavia. And again, eventually, the name reverted back to Philadelphia. Philadelphia was all, the name that was kept. And so Jesus is saying, as your city is named three times, I will give you three names. The first name I will give you is the name of the living God. And that is a mark of ownership. That is a mark saying that we belong to God, but you are his, you are his, someone who, his, pre, his precious child. That he's marked you with his name. But no one can take you away from being, being a child of the living God. And the second name was the name of the city of God. And that's the mark of citizenship. That you belong to that city. But you will be able to go in that city and out of that city forever because you are citizens of heaven. A bit like a passport. But better than a passport. It's written on you that you are a citizen of this, this, this heavenly city. And lastly, you're given the new name of the Son of God. We don't even know what that name is. But we know it's a glorious name. And that third name that we're given declares us as brothers of the Lord Jesus. As saved people. Three names. You are so precious to God, people. You really are. 
You are so precious. And it doesn't matter if you feel like Philadelphia, but you feel weak, unable to cope with the darkness we face in our world. It doesn't matter because it's not about you, it's about him. And he promises you, you hang on to the word, word. You keep close to him. He will make you a pillar. He will make you strong, even though you feel weak. He will make you strong because our strength comes from him. Our strength comes from his word and believing and trusting in the truth. Because he is holy. He is true. Whatever he says is holy and true. We can trust his words because he is genuine. He is authentic. People believe, trust, have confidence. And let God make you a pillar so that even the storms of 2021 and 2022 and 2020, whatever, won't be able to move you at the presence of God because you are a pillar in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.